at 1 John chapter 1. We're teaching through the Bible. It shouldn't be a unique distinctive. It should be a common thing in the church. It fascinates me when people come up and say, I'm so glad to, to be plugged in here and, and you're teaching through the Bible. I'm like, well, what else would I do? I don't get, I don't get it. But um, it, it's going to be more and more unique and more and more distinct that that happens. Uh, many of you know that. You've been stationed in various places and, and you sometimes it's hard to find that. I love to be able to do it because it's my responsibility. It's our responsibility as believers to share his word with one another. So we're going to go through this letter out of the New Testament, 1 John. Let me give you a little background on some things that were taking place at that time. And as we understand that, it'll help us see maybe not just the relevance for the early church, but the contemporary, our, our life now. <coughs> Excuse me. At the time this writing was presented, the Apostle John, a pastor, a teacher, a disciple, a follower, a believer in Jesus Christ, he's the instrument that the Word of God will come to. It's like God takes from the heart of God, pours into the vessel John, and brings forth through his hands these words. It's not John's desire, so just individually or separately, that he would write a book that people would remember him by. He's just an instrument. And it's beautiful that God chose to write through his instruments to convey his truth to, to you and I. Well, John was writing this letter, and at the time, the Gnostic heresy was rapidly influencing the church. Gnostic is where we get the word gnosis, um, or gnosis is the, is the Greek word, speaking of knowledge. They believed that they had higher knowledge. More, they were more the elite, and, and they knew more than others. And their belief was that matter, physical matter, is inherently evil. Therefore, a divine being could not take on human flesh. So they claimed that Jesus was a a spiritual manifestation and not a physical person based on their belief. Because if it's evil, a holy God can't inhabit an evil body, so to speak. It brought up a lot of problems. Because they also believed that because the physical body was what did evil, then the enlightened spiritual man did no evil. They were the enlightened ones. So anything they did in their body wasn't really them doing it, it's just that evil body. And so it was actually quite a mess, to say the least. It didn't matter what the physical body did because they had received a higher uh, hidden spiritual knowledge, the, the, the gnosis, this Gnostic theory, if you would. This led to a real big problem because the elite they were not accountable for things done in their body. Let me get, tell you what one author had said. This led in most cases to deplorable conduct and complete disregard for Christian ethics. Now you may think, well, okay, that was 2,000 years ago. Well, as history shows, there's nothing new under the sun. The old lies are simply repackaged as new truths. The new age is not new. Gnostic heresy is back with a new, higher knowledge that only the elite can know. It's manifested in spiritual realm. 
It's revealed in the political arena. It's shown in social media. It's shown by way of finance or economics. It's shown positionally by way of power. Do we not, are we not aware that there's a certain elite class that perceives themselves to be better than everybody else? And, and they have a rationale for their justification, as irrational as it may be to us, to them, there's this sense of, of like, they're just elevated, they're better. And so, you know, John, who is the human hand that God chose to write through, he begins this letter by patiently, yet, yet clearly telling his readers that Jesus was of flesh and blood, and that Jesus is God in human form. The letter is about relationships, beginning with the relationship God has made possible through the person Jesus Christ. It's so essential that we begin here and realize this because we need to understand that we follow the Jesus of the Bible. Many have tried to redefine Jesus. Mormons try to redefine Jesus. Wonderful people in a socioeconomic interaction, but their doctrine is horrible. The church doctrine is terrible. It teaches that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, and they presented alternate plans of salvation, and the Father accepted the spirit brother of Lucifer, whose name is Jesus, that plan. It's just, it's just you just go, what? You can't change him into be what you want him to be. The Jehovah Witnesses do the same thing. Islam. Actually, every false religion has a redefinition of Jesus. Every single one. They begin right there to, to somehow demean or remove or to alter the deity of Jesus Christ. And so we see in this letter that it happened in the first century. And if you study history, it's happened in every century since. These winds of false doctrine are, you know, they're, they're really not the wind, they're the tumbleweeds. And, and they just get blown around. And they land in different places and they sprout up and they go. And then next thing you know, they're down the road and they're 10 years later, five years later, they're back around. And they just keep coming around. And the reason they flourish is because too many in the church are willingly ignorant of the word of God. As we understand the word of God, we start seeing these false teachings and these, these problems. And so that's why, as you see, even in the first century, the first generation of the church, these things were happening, and God chose to reveal truth to you and I, to them, that we could we'd be able to discern the difference between good and evil. So let's begin with a, this declaration about the deity of Jesus found in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen, and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. John begins here speaking of the beginning of the created world. God was not created. He's the creator. God has always been. God is eternal. He is eternity, if you would, past and future. We, as humans, we are eternal in a present to future sense. That makes sense? 
you know, we, 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 are, we, are, uh, we were born, and that is our beginning, and then we go, then we see eternal. I hope you understand that. It's simple, really, but it's something that we don't always grasp. And some places teach very errant that we pre-existed, but that's not true. See, just because God knew when we would be born, so he's eternal, we have a beginning point. He knew back here when this day would come, even though we didn't exist at that, till that point, but it's pretty basic, but it's essential. Don't think that we just somehow pre-existed and we're disembodied beings and we're waiting to be called to a body and all that stuff. It's, it's, some teach that and it's bizarre. God created the heavens and the earth. Let's just go to our, a really important verse. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We'll bring it up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, when you work out that, you, you'll know joy in a greater level than you've ever imagined. What's so complex about that? In the beginning, God created, period. He did it. He declared that he did it. He made known that he did it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It goes on to say in verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. So, there's a lot of discussion and a lot of dialogue about how this worked. What's the time frame of that? Between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In the beginning, God created, but then the earth clearly, in its unformed form, existed because verse 2 tells us it did. So what, how'd that happen? I don't know. He just said that's how it is. Some would speculate and, and properly maybe consider and imagine and study, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe when Satan, when Lucifer rejected God, thought he could be God, and a third of heaven was cast down, maybe then was when disorder was brought upon the earth. I don't know. I don't worry about that stuff. I don't get upset about various things. Seriously, because it just says he did it. It just says that simple. Now, it's good to, to postulate and consider and ponder, but let's realize that's just what that is. This is definite and definitive here. God created the heavens and the earth. You know, many skeptics flounder in regards to the age of the earth. Agreed? So here's the problem. They use their geology to form their theology. So geology, the study of earth, and you could say even beyond that, it's not only the the makeup and the form of the earth and the universe. That study is not meant to define who God is. God is, and therefore you can study geology. It's so important. Your theology is the foundation for understanding geology. It's really critical because God said that he did it. Now deal with it. You can't say, well, I don't know, maybe this. Here's the interesting thing. Do you realize nowhere in the Bible does God set out to prove that God exists? The Bible is presented to you from an author. So he is wise enough to say, if I gave it to you, you know I am. It's <laughs> not complicated. I am always, I'm, I'm, that's I am. But yet it's interesting because a lot of people struggle. Nowhere in scripture does he try to prove that he has always been and always will be. He gives sufficient detail to the fact that 
The word of God is built on the reality that God is and will always be. Let me just tickle the thought a little bit about some who say, well, according to geology and our intellectual studies and geological principles, the earth must be so many magical millions of years old. And others would embrace a younger earth theory thought of, say, 6,000 years, give or take. And there's great divide on this. I don't know why. You are not eternal, correct? In the sense of past. You're only eternal from present or from birth forward. So you have this line that goes that way and this way. And you say, well, I think the earth was created a few million years ago, about here. So you put your peg right there. And somebody else says 6,000 years ago. But guess what? God's eternal. You put a peg on the line, but he's still eternal. You still are here. And that's why I don't loosely, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, have you ever heard of Dr. J. Vernon McGee? Raise your hand if you've not heard of him. You people need to get out more. Really, he's a really good, like old school Bible teacher. He just, he's just, I have his audio. He's the first commentary series I bought. Um, just really good stuff. You could check it out, you know. But anyway, he, he basically said that basic thing. Not in any way take away from the necessity and I believe the importance of, of doing study, but your theology is not driven by your geology. Geology, okay, well, maybe this or maybe that. Listen, I personally hold to a very young earth approach. I think there's sufficient reason, and I don't hold on to carbon dating and other silly attempts at intellect. I look at other factors to take into consideration. But nonetheless, let me continue with the point is, because someone can't understand or can't orient their theology, their study of God, until he resolved their geology, they find themselves saying, well, I, I, there is no God. Other people use other things to claim that there is no God. And I'll try to say this in a way that's, I, I know I can say it politely, but it's going to be also abrasive maybe to some. <laughs> to say there is no God, that person is intellectually dishonest and functionally foolish. To declare there is no God, look around. This world has design, it has order, it has a vast variety and detailed complexity. To say that this all came into being through the magic of time and spontaneous self-creation, it's just functionally foolish. A simple comparison, and I think it's so almost silly, but in subtle, it's so small, but it, it, it's a good picture, it is to... to Open a dictionary. Like, look, I happen to have one right here. You, open, you guys know what these, you ever seen one of these? Because I had to, I couldn't find one at my house. Seriously, I went to the library we have back here. I found one in my office. I got them on my phone, my tablet, my laptop. It's a weird world we're living in. That's not going to give you the visual I need you to get. see. If I was to open up and look up a word in the dictionary, say ignorant, for example, or ignoramus. Ignorant is lacking knowledge or comprehension. Ignoramus, a person who is utterly ignorant, and they just are not, they're unreceptive. Why do I use those two words? Well, gnosis, the seeking of higher knowledge, Gnosticism, which was present at the time we're looking at here in First John, also 
people have used that, used that word to say, I, am, I don't have knowledge. So when you have gnosis, knowledge, and you put an A in the front of it, that means you're Gnostic or you're agnostic. And, and Spurgeon accurately declared as he looked at the Greek and the Latin, to say you're agnostic is saying you don't know, to, is to say you're ignorant, is to say you're an ignoramus. So you really want to be careful how you use that word. Some people errantly use it in trying to describe what they're working out. They're not trying to say they're an ignoramus. They're just saying, I haven't resolved this yet. But the truth of the matter is, when you look up a word, and I, I go to this dictionary, I look up that word, and I'm thinking, okay. And I think, well, how does, what's that mean? Well, if I'm going to hold on to an evolutionary theory, I have to basically say, okay, so take this, these words. This has got a lot. This is, this, is, this is a good-sized dictionary. You know, there's a lot of fine print, a lot of, a lot of letters, numbers, symbols, punctuation, all this stuff. If I could take all these off and put them in a bucket, a bigger bucket, and just scrape all these words off there into a bucket, and I got them in the bucket, and, and, I, and I go ahead and squirt a little water on there, a little primordial mud kind of thing, something going on there, and then I just kind of mix them up. I put a little hair dryer on there, get some heat going on to it, shake it, stir it up, put a trash can lid on this big old bucket, and I just leave it here until tomorrow morning. And I come back in tomorrow morning, and I can pull this, bit, this dictionary out of it. Because it would self-assemble, self-define, self-order, and bring itself into being. Why are you looking at me like I'm silly? It just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Really? Is it? Why does that sound silly, ludicrous, ridiculous? Why is it that we are okay with teaching and promoting evolutionary theory to our children and young adults? This is much simpler than believing the order of this universe and the design of this planet just happened all at once. You can't use the magic time and say, well, it just took more years than we really know. You know? And why do I emphasize this? Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He declared that he created And we can look around and we can see the stars and the varied forms of life. And your only logical conclusion is there is a God. Now, you may not know who that God is, and I commend you for that. That, That's true. But you can only conclude there's a designer. You can only conclude there's a maker. There's no other logical conclusion that's acceptable. Now, can you know that God? That's another discussion. That's what we're looking at today. Um, You know, what are the characteristics, the qualities, what's the nature of that God? But can we agree you can only conclude one thing? that there is a God, there is a creator. Let's consider also what we find in the Bible in the Gospels. Uniquely and interestingly enough, we can find in John chapter 1, the same human author or human instrument that we find in 1 John, the Apostle John is used by God and he pens these words in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Well, who is the him? Who is the man, the person of that verse? Well, if you track on down to verse 14, we're told in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the Word, which is what was mentioned before, became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld the glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So do you see? John is making this beautiful declaration in this essential, simple statement. It's clear that there is a God, that God is creator, and that Jesus is God. So important, so essential. He uses the word 
word, the Greek word logos, and it's another title given to Jesus. You'll find it also in, in as we'll bring up Revelation chapter 19, verse 13. Speaking of Jesus, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Also in this same letter we're studying today, or in 1 John, you can see in chapter 5, verse 7, there are three that bear witness in the heaven. The Father, and normally we would think the Son and the Holy Spirit, but he uses to convey the Word, Logos, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. The triunity of God, three personages in one being. It's so powerful and it's so important because for me, I look at it and I think of the word of life as we have back in chapter 1, 1 John, verse 1. The word of life is a beautiful title, description of Jesus. Because you know as you've studied and as, you've grown, as you have grown as a Christian, you know that he speaks to you, to humanity, of eternal life. He, he, he shows the way to salvation. He said very clearly, no man comes to the Father except by me. So here's those words conveyed. He speaks to you of the life you can now have. He said, I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. Speaking not only of duration, but really the type, the quality of life that we can have in this world now. He also speaks to you, to me, of fellowship, of close, personal, intertwined, intimate relationship you can have with God. That's a very foreign concept in the time of this writing, and even now, quite honestly, for most people. Foreign, I mean, you know, to a Jew, this was border, borderline blasphemy. They would not even say Yahweh, Jehovah. They wouldn't say it because they didn't want to say it wrong. They seen that as a, as a by not using the word, the name commonly, was a, an act of reverence or high regard. And they didn't want to say it wrong. To, to think that you could walk and be and handle and touch and, and be alongside Jesus was like, ugh. Even Greek mythology and their, their, their spiritual religious beliefs did not give room for such intimacy and closeness. It was very uncomfortable, very awkward. <laughs> Years ago, I was able to travel to India. I've been there a few times with the ministry of Send Hope Now and, and glad to be a part of what they're doing there. And in that trip, I spent a couple weeks in the same area with some friends and their culture's different. Their engagement's different. And so this one point, and I'm a guy, I'm Idaho, okay? I, I, I'm not complaining about it, just that's my roots, that's where I'm from, that's the depth of my redneckedness. So here I'm walking down this hill and just having a great time. You know, they have this beautiful, like, dark complexion and just beautiful white teeth. And you just, I mean, I just, I'm just enamored by just the, the engaging with them. Well, I'd met this one guy, we talked quite a bit, and I tried to, you know, I had to use a translator most of the time and to understand him and... We're walking back off the hill, and we're walking along, and he comes up beside me and grabs my hand and walks with me. And I just simply freak out inside. I'm like, this is so creepy. Why is he? And I knew, I knew why he was doing it. In that culture, when two men hold hands like that, it, it's an expression of, of companionship, of camaraderie, of, of closeness, of trust. It's a very special thing. It doesn't happen that often. And to have it with someone you just barely met. So I knew that. But I didn't care. There's a part of me that's in the creep freak out factor. And I'm like, 
<laughs> and I worked through it. Another situation, Middle Eastern. So just being over in Israel and, and, and being able to travel a little bit even before this trip. But you'll see them, they'll be uh, maybe at a, in a dining area, like a restaurant, or oftentimes like walking through a, a shopping area, a popular area. A guy will walk up to another guy and put his hand on his shoulder like this. So here they're just talking and they're just like this. I'm like, get a life, dude. What are you doing? That just seems, I just don't know. I just not wired that way. See, there's something about us, and I'm just using these two examples to show you that there's some cultural clash. There's some times that we just don't quite understand intimacy, and you have that awkwardness with God sometimes. Sometimes you're just, you want to be close, but it just, it just seems so awkward because you're so familiar with this world and the things of this world, and, and you're trying to look to him and lean on him and walk with him, and it just seems awkward. But God is presenting to, to us through this word, through his word here, that there's this beautiful and, and phenomenal and beyond comprehension fellowship. The word in Greek, many of you know it, koinonia, it conveys, you know, not just commonality, but, but, but thoroughly connected, you know, shared resources, completely combined. It's not, the surface level is, hey, how's your job? Hey, did your team win? Uh, have you checked the weather today? You know, that, that's okay, but the depth, that, that's just kind of coming into Koinonia. That's not really Koinonia. Koinonia is hearts entwined, uniquely engaged. And that's what God offers. That's what we're seeing from this letter, that God invites you and I into this close relationship with him in such a way that we could know his love and we can walk in his truth. We have here in this first verse, these first four verses, the presentation that Jesus is God and you can know the creator, the God of the universe, the savior of humanity, Jesus Christ. Many here today, many hear this message, first service or this service, they know it doctrinally. They understand it rationally, but they're longing for it personally. To have that sense of closeness and confidence and assurance that though none go with me, still I will follow. Though no, no matter what happens in this world, God, I know we're, I'm, tight, I'm right with God because of what he's done. Verse two and three, John presents truth, experience, fact. He's not showing you theory or philosophy. He conveys reality, what has taken place, the life. Jesus was made known, it was manifested. We have seen it. Our lives speak of it because our lives were changed. It bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father when was manifested to us. The eternal life that was with the Father. Before creation, we've already considered that there's this point of the beginning and the beginning, but God existed before that beginning. Love was expressed when humanity was placed on the planet. Prior to that, love was expressed in the triunity of God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The love that's there is then brought to humanity. That which existed before, that was manifested to us. Notice it said in verse one, I'll just reference back to that, that we have seen with our eyes, John is conveying his personal experience and many of the followers at that time. 
we have looked upon. To see something at a distance, it captures your attention. But to look upon it conveys, you know, um, much more thoroughness. When you, when, like for example, when I was in Israel, we, we looked upon, say, a, a particular artifact or a, a, you know, a structure or a, you know, like the Pool of Siloam where we were. I looked at it generally, but then I looked closer at, the, at the, the shape of the rocks and the wear of the rocks and the type of grout or dirt or whatever's in between. I looked closer. Much the same, you know, when you, we, he says he looked upon Jesus, or he's seen him and then he looked upon him. Looked deeper, chose to go deeper, chose to understand in a greater way. And that's what's being conveyed in encouragement to you and I, that we would choose to go deeper. Verse four, these things we write to you that your joy may be full. There's a purpose in this letter. There's a purpose we see. And here it's, it's declared simply and beautifully for us. Why do we have this letter? Well, one of the reasons is that your joy may be full. This is a frequent topic in John's writings. You find in John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus speaking to his disciples, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Joy is important. I mean, you get this clarity. Happiness, happenstance is oriented around this physical, this, this circumstances and the situations of this life. So when things are really good, you're really happy. When things go sour, you're not so happy. It's situational, circumstantial. Joy has a similar expression, but joy is centered, it's oriented, it's based on your relationship with God. That, then when, when circumstances come, you still have joy. When happy things happen, you still have joy. When hard and horrible and terrible things take place, and they will, you can still hold on to this joy. It can actually be full. And people may even try to figure out, how could you go through that without freaking out? Well, you're thinking, I did freak out inside. But there was a calming presence, a knowledge of God's presence, an awareness. It's a type of joy that manifests. And Jesus says, God's desire is that your joy may be full. He said it again, John did, as recorded in 16, verse 24 of the Gospel of John. Until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. See, when we're being led by God to pray according to the will of God, requesting the resources from God, and we see the response of God, you don't go, well, that's a bummer. God answered my prayer. You're encouraged. You're, you're, when your prayers are, are led by the Lord and, and, and you experience his provision or his comfort, you're like, wow, it really happened to me. I've heard other people tell their story, but this, he, he met my needs right now. Your joy, it, it, just, it, 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 just, it just grows. Lastly, we can see also in John chapter 17, verse 13, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an, an, an element of life experience for this day, for now even in hard times and difficult times, to know his joy. We've got to wrap up some time with our time here. So let's close out with three things 
that I believe God wants to realize, us to realize from this beautiful letter. <coughs> Excuse me. First one we've looked at. He says very specifically, these things that we write to you, that your joy may be full. That's, his, that's one of the things he desires for you to receive and to take from this, this portion of the, of the word of God, that you would know his joy in a, in a fuller way. We see also in the same letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. See, the word of God is instructive, corrective, and comforting. It gives us instruction, you know, it's best not to do it this way. When you choose to go against the will of God, there's a consequence, right? If someone says, hey, don't touch that piece of metal, it's hot. Like, well, how hot is it? What do you mean it'll burn your finger? You may think, well, I've got nine others, I'll try. But see, you, you can learn something. You can touch it, get a blister, a little bit of a skin sizzle, and then you're like, ah, you proved the word of God to be true. You went against his instruction and you experienced the consequences and the scarring that goes with it. But it's better not to do that. It's better not to go against it. And he's saying, I want to give you instruction. God has not given you and I instruction in, in this life and, and how to deal with reality to rob us of our joy. He's given us the instructions that our joy may be full. He's not trying to rip you out like, oh, great, I have to do this and I can't do that. No, no, no. God is looking out for you. He has your best interest in mind when he gives you instruction and direction. So he's writing this letter that we would learn, that we would know not to sin. You sin, I sin. Sometimes it's just stupid inaction. Just didn't think, just did. And then I realized I shouldn't have done that later. So that's a learning process. But I've also found that when I'm in the word of God, I'm seeing more clearly what sin really is. I'm not quite the sucker. I don't, I don't buy into just spontaneous desires as much. So when I'm in the word, I'm more aware of the world I'm in, that I may not sin. Now let's look at the third thing we find in 1 John chapter 5 in verse 13. That God would help, we desire that we would realize, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. If you believe in the name of the Son of God, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, if you believe the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he who knew no sin became a sin payment for us, for you, that he died for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, that he ascended into heaven in bodily form, that he is the savior of humanity, specifically your savior, then he, he tells you you're, you're born again. You're born of the spirit. And he wants you to know that you have eternal life. The one angle of the enemy, the one means by which he often tries to deceive people is he tries to convince them, yeah, well, you say you got saved 15 years ago at a youth camp. Yeah, you, you come to Christ 12 years ago, two, day, you know, two months ago, but you've still been carrying on like a tramp. You've still been getting sloshed every Friday night. You've still been looking at that stuff you shouldn't look at. You still talk like a sailor. You, you, ain't, you ain't saved. You ain't nothing. And you have to say, well, that's a good point. Here's the problem with that. He's always going to be the accuser of the brethren. But God teaches us through his word that as you're born again, he now teaches us how to walk in truth and to walk away from the former way. 
So what we see, what you see, when there's a conviction, you used to live this way, you started out with Christ, and now you still live this way. If there's a conviction, like a, a gut check, a disturbance in your soul, that's a good thing, because it's usually the Holy Spirit saying, hello, stupid, this is going to hurt, you know that, that's not who you are, this is who you are, go this way. And so then you, you realize, oh man, here's a problem sometimes we face. We think, okay, I shouldn't have done that. I knew better. I know what's right. I did it. Man, I'm a mess. I got to pull back. I got to not go to church because I'm a hypocrite. That's a bad conclusion. A born-again conclusion is this. Oh man, I knew better. I shouldn't do that. I'm a hypocrite. Oh, God, I need more of you. You see the difference? One says, I need more of God. I can't do this. I can't live this new life on my own power and accord. God, I need you. Oh, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to trust in you. Because you, you, it's so important. You know you have eternal life. It's not based on your stat card. You know, do you carry, like, you remember there used to be those little things called baseball cards? And it showed the stats, on baseball players, and you can get them for football or whatever. And, and, you know, Christians carry the same thing, you know, metaphorically speaking. Like, oh, I, I was pretty good. No, well, man, 2019 was a good year. Ooh, oh, boy, I did not bat well at 2020 <laughs> or whatever. You, no, chuck that thing. That doesn't determine anything. Your salvation is based on what God has done for you, not what you can do for God. It's what he has done. You should see a manifestation of the new life in you. If you're claiming to be born again, and you have no problem living like you've never been born again, like you're living in the world, I would suggest to you, you probably aren't born again, you're just buying a lie. And I can support that next week when we get into the rest of the first John. You can't walk in darkness and claim fellowship with God. It does, it's not, you're a liar, and then the truth is not in you. That's what John says. He's not going to pull punches. He's not going to soft sell it. He's not going to take 45 minutes to say what he can say in four words. That's why I like the guy. This gets to the point. All this to say, I just want to encourage you, God's desires that your joy may be full. God desires that you would recognize sin and follow him and not sin. And God's desires that you would know you have eternal life. The knowledge of salvation. Salvation is, is not, it's not a bargaining point. He paid the price. It's paid in full. Your relationship with God is because he called you to him. He made you aware of your sin. It was in his love and his grace that he opened your mind to the reality of your need for him. You responded to that need by receiving him, by believing in him, and now he is faithful and just to carry you through. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He will carry you through. We gotta realize that. Otherwise, we're gonna be stuck like many people. They come to church, and then they do wrong through the week. They stop coming to church. Years go by, and then they decide, I gotta get back to church because they're getting beat up on this reality of, of they think, oh my gosh, I must not be saved. Maybe I am saved. I don't know what I'm saying. What torment that may be. How much more to say, you know, I just want to know his love. I'm going to close right there, have the worship team come up. We're going to end our time. I like to end the time 
in prayer. I'd like to end with 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. And well, what I mean by end is that's where I get just get out of the way and they can lead us in music, worship. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, I like to pray this through. But it's a, an invitation. It's a declaration. It's something we want to grasp and comprehend and ponder. Will you stand with me? We're going to read this verse and then pray, and the worship team will close out our time with a beautiful song of worship together. Oh, God, may your word ring true more and more in our hearts and minds. May we take hold of these truths. Even now, may we be not just in an imaginative sense or contemplative sense, but just in the depth of our being. Would you help us to behold what manner of love that you have poured out, you have bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, The world doesn't know us because it did not know you. And so, Lord, may you use us for your purposes. If there's anyone here today, you don't have that confidence of eternal life. It's very simple, but it's very difficult. It's difficult because you have to let go of you and take hold of him. It's simple because Jesus has accomplished everything. He said very simply, very clearly, very definitively, whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. And so you would begin by saying, I believe, God. I believe, but I have unbelief. I, 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 I take this first step because you, you know, you've called me. You've brought this truth to me this morning. But I don't know what to do next. I don't know how to keep going. I don't know how to break habits and change behavior. I don't even know what would change. But I ask you to teach me. You give me this life, and I believe you'll lead me in that life. So I turn to you. And by faith, I ask you to teach me, Jesus, what this life is that you have for me. If you forgive me of my sins, if you pay the price I could never pay, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. I sing to you for your goodness, for your love, for your kindness your great grace that's given. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.